Chapter Five, Part B of Women of America, by John Ruth Laris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In Anne Hutchinson and Mary Dyer, we have seen two types of the New England woman as leaders of men. The former was perhaps more of a power, the latter an influence, but each was complement to the other not in task but in type it needs no wonderful discernment to see in these women the rise and fluorescence of the new england spirit which has come down to our own day and has permeated and informed the whole american genius of femininity through their descendants in some cases unworthy of their ancestors whom they deserted or even betrayed the blood of mrs hutchinson and mrs dyer is with us but that is of less moment than the survival of their spirit of the independence of the american woman when convinced of right of her steadfastness in following her impulses undeterred by sneers or even bodily perils though they were not directly of the puritan mothers not directly of the stock which has most numerically survived the names of ann hutchinson and mary dyer are deserving of honorable memorial as among the first founders of the feminine republic of america they were pioneers also ann hutchinson was the first woman preacher of whom we have record on these our shores and she was the first of the many religious prophetesses who were to rise up and for a time draw men and women to them because of their personality rather than from any merit in their tenets it was probably far less that which mrs hutchinson preached than that which she was that brought to her meetings those seventy or eighty devoted women who looked upon her as one inspired mary dyer had no following was like him she preached despised and rejected of men but she was in a sense the proto-martyr among women in our country and she kindled a flame which in another guise rose to a gigantic conflagration when the time came for women to speak fearlessly and openly their thoughts concerning great matters that our picture may know some completeness however it is needful to glance at the effect of these women and others like them upon the female world of new england while anne hutchinson in some sense stood alone of her sex mary dyer was only one of a great number of devoted men and women merely singled out by her fate for enduring memory the women of the quakers driven by the spirit went through the land preaching in defiance of all the laws that were fulminated against them. We must not be too sudden or violent in our condemnation of the men who sat in judgment upon these people, for to the Puritan the Quaker represented a peril which in this day we cannot comprehend, while the Puritan had also the excuse for harshness that he owned the land and only desired the Quaker to remain outside his borders yet when this is said we can but give the most hearty admiration to the superb courage of the people who believed it to be their duty 
to intrude where they were not desired, and believing shrank from no consequence of their faith. Their women, with whom we have most particularly to do, suffered grievously for their devotion. They were whipped at the cart's tail, they were maimed, they were branded, they were even hanged. Yet they persisted. By their devotion they not only gained many adherents, rarely open sympathizers, but secret friends, but set a standard for womanhood. Gradually the Puritan camp, under the constancy of their foes, became divided. The majority of the Puritans, and especially of their women, grew more and more virulent as the Quakers persisted in their intrusion. But there was among the women an element, ever growing and strengthening, which found inspiration in the methods of those whom they had first condemned. They had themselves suffered for their faith, though not as these others, and they found a respect for those who shrank from no penalty so that they might testify to their faith and do service. It is after the coming of the Quakers that we find the New England woman more determined, more active, more bound to high ideals. The mark of the despised Quakers remained deeply graven, in effect, if not in heredity, on the New England character, especially in its women. Moreover, the example of the female preachers of the Quakers had its effect in urging upon the New England woman, hitherto undreamed of possibilities, of making herself heard in the councils of the land. Seeing what women could do as well as bear, the New England woman was made stronger for both, and she did not forget the lesson which came to her through those whom at first she received with hatred and despite. Such were the great religious feminine uprisings and revolts in New England. Woman had proved that she was capable of establishing at least a partial independence, had shown that she was gradually coming to be a force that would have to be reckoned with in future estimates of the commonwealth. It is true that the fathers of the land did not read the signs of the times and believed the new movement of feminine progress to be but sporadic and of certain termination in the near future, but they had some excuse for their blindness in the existence and nature of another feminine movement which placed the female nature in a most unenviable light, that of witchcraft. Under the chronological system, which has been adopted, though it has been stretched several times nearly to the breaking point, it becomes necessary to treat of witchcraft in New England in two separate chapters, the Salem outbreak falling by date within the latter period of colonization. Before we too greatly blame our forefathers and foremothers for their superstition and cruelty in the matter of witchcraft, it may be well to remember a few facts in connection with the subject. Such men as Cranmer, Bacon, Luther, Melanchthon, and Kepler have recorded their belief in witchcraft, and as late as 1765 Blackstone wrote, to deny the possibility nay, actual existence of witchcraft and sorcery, is at once flatly to contradict the revealed word of God in various passages 
both of Old and New Testaments, and the thing itself is the truth to which every nation in the world hath, in its time, borne testimony either by example, seemingly well attested, or by prohibitory laws, which at least suppose the possibility of commerce with evil spirits. Blackstone was not unenlightened, and so we can see that a belief in the actual and present existence of witchcraft was not inexcusable in our New England forebears. Belief in witchcraft was prevalent in England down to the nineteenth century, and even in the English church in the seventeenth century there was a canon which forbade clergymen to cast out devils without being duly licensed to do so and such licenses were actually issued by the bishop of chester it must also be remembered that america was considered by virtue probably of the color of its aborigines to be the peculiar domain of a satanic majesty who delighted in dwelling within its shores hence it would have been rather strange if there had not arisen in the colonies accusation of witchcraft this however does not preclude our sympathy with the victims or our conclusions as to the nature of the women who believed in such charges and as to the civilization which condemned the witches to death for it was usually on charges brought by women against women that there came accusation of witchcraft the men were rarely more than judges and executioners thus the subject falls well within our scope of discussion and narration the first new world victim of such an accusation was margaret jones who in sixteen forty eight was condemned at charlestown where she lived and was duly hanged the ground of accusation seems to have been that goody jones as she was called after the fashion of the day was a medical practitioner who did not believe in venesection or in the use of violent emetics but worked her cures by means of herbs and simples and thus aroused the jealousy and distrust of the regular physicians the case is instructive as showing the very slight grounds that were sufficient to bring about a charge of witchcraft and it is also instructive as demonstrating the childlike credulity of some of the strongest men of the time that governor winthrop who presided at the trial of goody jones records a proof of the woman's guilt at that hour of her execution there came a very great tempest in connecticut which blew down many trees there were at least two other victims within the next two years but in sixteen fifty six we find a case that is really startling as showing the ranks into which the prevalent superstition could penetrate as a fatality in that year was hanged on boston common mistress anne hibbins whose husband had been a member of the council of assistants and an esquire and whose brother richard bellingham was deputy governor of massachusetts we know very little of the merits of this case which is unfortunate as the facts would undoubtedly be interesting looking to the high social standing of the victim mistress hibbins was tried before endicott and we may be sure that that stern old puritan paid no attention to the social position of the accused we know that the rev john norton who had breathed fire and flame against the quakers and was no friend to any who disturbed the peace of the colony 
held that mistress hibbins was wrongfully done to death and declared that she was condemned only for having more wit than her neighbours and he tells us that the circumstance which held most weight against her was her remark on seeing two people inimical to her talking together that she was sure that they were talking about her it would not seem that magic was needed to suggest such a conclusion but the judges thought that no one but a witch could have divined such an abstruse fact and mrs hibbins suffered for her feminine penetration acquittals were not unknown but they were rare but whether acquitted or not those accused of witchcraft who were not seldom women of extremely refined and gentle natures were subjected to many indignities as well as great cruelties during the time they rested under suspicion or charge these outrages affected for the purpose of proving or testing the witches were in some cases of such a nature as to make it undesirable to do more than allude to them in like manner the punishments on conviction were often carried out in a manner revolting to the delicacy of the condemned it is recorded however that on one occasion where the accused had confessed to doing most wonderful things the jury marvellously gifted with common sense simply found that said accused had lied in the confession whereupon the court passed sentence for a fine or a whipping but such a jury was very rare and one of the most remarkable features of the whole matter is found in the confessions of the self-styled witches when goody glover in sixteen eighty eight was accused of having bewitched a child named margaret goodwin in revenge for an accusation of theft she was visited in prison by cotton mather and to him she confessed that she had made a compact with the evil one and was in the habit of frequenting sabbaths held by him she had been sentenced and the confession could do her no possible good or harm it and all of its kind must have been dictated by a sheer hysterical nervousness or else by a fanatical craze for notoriety indeed it was in those days the badge of distinction albeit a perilous one to be declared a witch and next in fame was to enjoy the reputation of having been bewitched by some noted sorceress of this latter insanity the above-named margaret goodwin was a notable example though but a child she was shrewd enough to enjoy the attention which she excited as a victim of witchcraft and she steadfastly refused to be cured even though cotton mather then but a young preacher took her into his own home for treatment as a somewhat peculiar and in some ways characteristic product of her time and place margaret goodwin deserves a moment's attention from us she was a perfect little elf in shrewdness and she could act like a rachel she was determined that she would not lose the notoriety and the comfortable home which she had found so she played her part to perfection mather hated quakers catholics and even the church of england so margaret found that she could read most easily quaker or popish tracts as well as the book of common prayer but not a word in the bible or any puritan work what symptoms of the workings of the devil could seem surer to a man of mather's prejudices 
and sympathies. Then again Margaret could not be prevailed upon to enter Mather's study, and would scream and kick like a young donkey until she was dragged by force into the room, when she would become calm and assert that the devil had just fled from her in the form of a mouse, unable to endure the presence of the sacred works which lined the walls. Probably she had learned these things from the old dames of her native village, with the remnants of Teutonic folklore. But the strange part of the affair was that Cotton Mather, who tells us all these details, had no doubt whatever of the genuineness of the possession. If the accusers of Goody Glover were typical of the credulity and superstition of their age, Margaret Goodwin, with her shrewd ability to make use of the most salient tendencies and prejudices of her benefactor in order to deceive him, was a type of certain other aspect of Puritanism which has not yet entirely died away, and never will, as long as New England possesses individuality of human product. So that even the minx who fooled Cotton Mather to the top of his bent seems to be worthy of rescue from obscurity in this retrospect of the path by which American women have reached their present position and characteristics. It may be objected to the women whose names appear in this chapter that they were not typical New England women, but were only typical of phases of New England life in the early days of the colonies. Whether or not this allegation be just, we can assuredly learn from their stories and characters much of the atmosphere in which lived the New England woman of the greater part of the seventeenth century. She was at once a product and a producer, a cause and an effect of her environment. There was constant action and reaction. She molded her time, and her time molded her. She lived, as we have seen, if we have rightly understood that which we have read, in an atmosphere of religious turmoil and energy, of purity of purpose and integrity of faith, and of the darkest and most narrowing superstition. All these things acted mentally and spiritually upon the woman of New England. They entered into her life and character. She was energized as well as controlled and directed by them. There was, of course, no steadfastness, no persistence, of one straightly hewn type, but there was an ever-recurring tendency, a gradual advance along the line of least resistance. Many were the faults of the Puritan woman. She was cold, she was hard, she was fanatical, she was credulous, but she was virtuous, she was truthful, in higher sense than mere veracity, she was faithful, in deeper sense than mere constancy, and she was strong with the strength that came to her from resistance to the influences which sought her downfall. And she was deep, deep with the depth of the sea and the forests, and the universal spirit of the new land that had made her its child. She was sternly repressed. Subjection to her husband was a rule of the Puritan woman's life, accepted by her as rightful and even necessary. For it she found biblical authority, and that was sufficient for her in all things. Yet, though literally 
and not merely nominally under the rule of her husband, the Puritan woman never thought of herself as a slave either to a man or a system. Privately she might be a scold and a shrew, if she had not the fear of the ducking-stool or of the scold's bridle before her eyes, but publicly she was under tutelage and respected herself, even as she was respected, none the less on that account. It was a matter of time and place. It was a self-imposed condition, rather than the survival of barbarism, as it is considered to-day by the theorists of femininity. So at the close of the early period of colonization, when the land was beginning to thrill with the first stirrings of nationality, the Puritan woman, not yet a type, though strongly individual, stood looking into the future as one that sees but does not fear the coming time of need and responsibility. No longer English, yet not American, she stood a transition product, but one that was to find result in a permanency that would lay the strongest impress upon the nation that was to arise in after years. Meanwhile there was advancing in another portion of our country, a portion so remote from New England as practically to be a different land in all but ties of birth, a feminine civilization of a type wildly different from that of Massachusetts and Connecticut. The northern culture was strongly and preeminently democratic in its origins. That of the south, before the close of the period now under consideration, had come to be as preeminently aristocratic, beginning in the same way as that of Massachusetts, even with lower origin, since, for a time, it threatened to be a mere penal settlement, Virginia soon began to attract to herself a class of adventurers wildly differing from those who sought religious liberty on the bleak shores of Plymouth Bay. Differing from the general rule in such matters, in Virginia it was the better class which survived, the convict class being gradually submerged by the persistence of the higher grade of immigrants. It must not, however, be forgotten in recalling the origin of the Virginian feminine culture, that even among the convicts there were many who were mere prisoners of state, and were of birth and standing the equal of any free men whom they left behind them in England. Nor are the origins of so much concern as results. It is only where the former are evidently and persistently causal that they need dwelling on in this work. Therefore, we will pass from Virginia in the act of formation to Virginia as settled by a people who were as individual in their way, though a most diverse one, as their brethren of New England. But before completing the journey from Massachusetts to Virginia, let us pause for a moment at an intermediary colony to commemorate the deed of another woman pioneer in America, Mistress Margaret Brent of Maryland the first American woman to demand equal rights with men in the councils of state, the prototype of every female reformer of later times. It is necessary to suppose the reader familiar with the government and affairs generally in that peculiar palatine, the colony of Lord Baltimore of Maryland. On the ninth of June, 1647, 
Leonard Calvert, the governor of Maryland, and vice-gerent of Lord Baltimore, died at St. Mary's, then the capital of the colony. He was attended during his fatal illness by his kinswomen, mistresses Margaret and Mary Brent, and the former was made administrator to his estate. From this resulted an unprecedented incident, when in January 1648, the new governor having called a session of the assembly, Mistress Margaret Brent appeared in the council chamber and demanded to have a vote in the house for herself and another as his lordship's, Lord Baltimore, attorney. Upon the refusal of the assembly, shocked at such a revolutionary demand, to consider the matter, Mistress Brent protested in form against all the proceedings of that assembly, unless she might be present and vote as aforesaid. Her protest did her very little good, unless it be well to have one's name handed down as a baffled reformer. But she thus won for herself at least a right to have her name placed on the pages of any volume dealing with the progress of the women of America. As far as there is any record, Margaret Brent was absolutely the first woman who ever even dreamed of being accorded equal rights of citizenship in a commonwealth of modern times, though antiquity could show other examples. She was at all events the first American woman to demand the privilege of the ballot and of a share in the government of her country, and her demand was based on the same foundation as that of her sisters in latter times, that of the rights conferred by the care of property and a stake in the welfare of the commonwealth. The women reformers of our day should promote Margaret Brent to the position of their patron saint and proto-martyr. Let us resume the journey to Virginia and study as best we may the aspects of feminine culture as found in the great southern colony. Unfortunately, even in general matters, there is a great dearth of authoritative record of Virginia colonial days, and in the matter of the doings of individual women, or even of the sex generally, we find but little of interest. We can only gather up the fragments and judge from them the feast of which they tell. Though Maryland may be considered a southern colony, and was indeed so regarded, we must not take Margaret Brent as representative of the feminine status or spirit in the South. The women of Virginia in the early colonial days were less independent, less assertive, than their sisters of New England, where women, as we have seen, occasionally took the lead in matters of public import, but not so in Virginia. There women were held in less account, though not in less respect than in the northern colonies. This was caused by a multiplicity of reasons, chief among which is the fact that in Virginia there was far greater difference of rank and station than in the north. The consequence of this was that, while in New England the woman was a needful and recognized adjunct of the home, that unit on which was based civilization of the north, in Virginia she was more of ornament than necessity. Hence, while in the councils of New England, woman had made herself felt and recognized as a power, and thus had come to be held in mental esteem as a sex, 
though not always overtly, as we have seen, she was in Virginia still the lady, the almsgiver, the comforter and inspirer, but not the fellow laborer, the equal in danger and toil, and therefore in counsel. For it cannot be denied, save by him who has studied history with blind eyes, that in the matter of descent the colonists of Virginia were far superior to those who made to blossom the bleak shores of Massachusetts Bay. On both records there are too many blots of birth to make it safe for the ancestral tuft-hunter to delve very deep into the past in his research on American soil. But the balance of rank is with the Virginian. Therefore it is that, while we instinctively regard the early New England woman, taken collectively, as a worker, a true colonist, we turn to the representative Virginia woman of the same day with the expectation of seeing a dame dressed in a short skirt of divers colors, with a huge ruff and high-heeled shoes, with mincing gait and some pretty little affectations of speech and bearing, and we are not disappointed in the expectation. There is another very important influence in the result of Southern culture as discriminated from that of the North, the existence of slavery. Though in some of the Northern colonies there was Indian slave labor, there was but little of pure menial service in the household itself. The New England woman, as we shall see more clearly in the next chapter, was her own servant, she was the worker as well as the lady of the house. It was not so in Virginia. From the day, ill-omened in many respects, but powerful informative effect upon the culture it modified, when the Dutchman left behind him his twenty negro slaves, the conditions of servitude in the Virginia plantations were altered, and when the plantations had become a colony, slavery was well established. It was still held in disfavor by many, at home and abroad, but it had come to remain for years and even centuries. The consequence of the importation and constant increase of slave labor was felt in many ways, but none so strongly as in the conditions of the household. The Virginia lady had her troops of servants, not so many at first, but still in sufficient numbers to save her any need of personal labor, while her sister of the North was compelled, because of circumstances, if not of choice, to do with her own hands the daily tasks that arise in the well-ordered household. True, this difference was not so marked at the time which we are immediately considering as it became soon afterward. It is stated that in 1649, there were in Virginia but three hundred Negro slaves. And, though the strict accuracy of such computation may be doubted, it may be admitted as substantially correct. But there was a rapid and constant increase, and long before the end of the early colonial period, slavery had become an established institution and had produced the effects upon Virginia society which were later to take such emphasis shape. The Virginia lady of the colonial period was teaching as a mistress of the manor 
rather than as a housewife. She was less notable in her accomplishments of housewifery than were the women of New England, but she had charms which they lacked, the charms that come from opportunity to indulge the impulse of refinement. Of course, all Virginia in its feminine element was not made up of the cream bubbles of society. There was the lower stratum as well. There were even strata, diminishing in numbers as in importance, as one neared the bottom of the pale. There were in Virginia, as in New England, laws which showed that Virginia woman was not always a lady, or at least did not always demean herself as such. We find, for instance, that there is in an enactment which determines that women causing scandalous suits are to be ducked, and for the furtherance of this penalty there shall be set upon, near the courthouse in every county, besides a pillory, stocks, and a whipping-post, a ducking-stool. This same ducking-stool, which was an importation from England and not an American innovation, consisted of a pole with a rude chair fastened to the end, hanging over a pond or stream, the pole being so balanced that any one seated in the chair and secured there might be lowered into the water, held therein until drowning was imminent, and then again hoisted to air and life. This weapon of an offended justice was, in Virginia as in New England, made the penalty for divers' offenses, and the language of one act is amusing in its evidently masculine origin, where it condemns to the ducking-stool brabbling women who often slander and scandalize their neighbors, for which their poor husbands are often brought into chargeable and vexatious suits and cast in great damages. That poor is significant of experience and consequent wrath. Yet, while these and similar precautions against feminine dominance by force prove the existence, if we did not know of them otherwise, of degrees in Virginia feminine station, their representative Virginia woman was of more pampered and easier existence than was her sister in the North. In New England, as well, there were towards the end of the early colonial period well-defined strata of society, but they were neither so far separated nor so marked as were those of Virginia. The New England dame was called goody or mistress according to her social standing, the latter title being for long reserved for the spouse of a knight. The goodies were not only enormously in the majority, but they were types of popular existence. The Virginia woman was softly nurtured and clad in purple and fine linen, the latter literally after a time. The New England woman was expected to do her duties to her husband as he to her, and her garb was homespun. Even the conditions of ordinary life were different in the two great colonies. New England existence was from the first a segregation. There was a constant tendency to draw together in towns. In Virginia, on the other hand, there was a tendency to differentiation of residence. Beginning as a chain of plantations, the colony continued in this character. 
the consequence was a number of small feudalities in outward aspect and the assumption by the virginia lady of the position of the chatelaine each of the great ladies was a little queen ruling over a certain number of acres and subjects and this attribute of the colony at first accidental and of small scope grew into a condition now this existence and the tendencies that brought it about were far more english than were the conditions of the northern colonies and so it is that in early virginia we find far less individuality of femininity than we do find in early new england england held her influence in virginia the england of the royal court for it must be remembered that virginia was strongly loyal she never accepted the rule of the roundhead and the influx of the cavaliers some of their own wills and some on compulsion as political convicts not only confirmed virginian politics but virginian manners more english than england itself these eager carolists never acknowledged a hiatus in the rule of the stuarts and the restoration found them entirely in accord with its returning theories and the majority of its practices but not all for virginia had some morals left her even after the coming of the cavaliers an incident in connection with bacon's rebellion will indicate the esteem and place in which women were held in the days when berkeley ruled virginia as its nominal governor and real emperor the culminating days of the period with which we have to do the stalwart rebel being in danger of attack before he was ready sent into the surrounding country and gathered in the wives of several of the prominent gentlemen who were themselves in the camp of his antagonist the autocratic berkeley we are told that it is probable that these ladies were brought to the stronghold of the rebel in their carriages which shows in itself the advance of virginian luxury beyond that of new england where a pillion was all that could be expected by any but the most modish people for bacon rebelled in sixteen seventy six and coaches were not general in new england until nearly two decades later though we are told that john winthrop had one in sixteen eighty five the ladies were brought to bacon's camp at greenspring whether afoot on pillions or in carriages but assuredly sorely against their wills there have been handed down to us the names of four of these ladies madame bray madame page madame ballard and madame bacon the latter of connection of the rebel himself they were treated courteously enough in some ways but they were informed that they would be held as hostages for the forbearance of sir william until preparations had been made for his reception and still greater precautions were taken against attack as will be seen for mr bacon though he had the repute of a pro chevalier sent one of the ladies to inform her husband and those of the other dames that he meant to place the ladies in the forefront of his men while the fortifications were in progress thus securing his forces against attack by interposing the shield of sacred femininity between them and their enemies when the white-aproned herald 
delivered her message, the poor gentlewomen were mightily astonished, and neither were their husbands void of amazement at this subtle invention. No wonder, for though, as a conception, the words of General Bost, c'est magnifique, might have been applied certainly, but they would needs be followed by the rest of the famous saying, Ma ce n'est pas la guerre. The chronicler of the affair continues in a strain which is worthy of at least partial quotation for its sardonic humor. If Mr. Fowler thought it strange that the devil's black guard should be enrolled God's soldiers, he says, the husbands made it no less wonderful that their innocent and harmless wives should thus be entered a white guard to the devil. And this action was a method in war that they were not well acquainted with, that before they could come to pierce their enemy's sides, they must be obliged to dart their weapons through their wives' breast. The devil of the foregoing is, of course, Bacon himself. And really, when we think of the poor ladies set in their white aprons on the breastworks, not sure whether they have to fear most from the front or the rear, from friend or foe, we are tempted to consider the title as well bestowed. Yet Bacon was generally held to be a man of gallantry as well as a gallant man. But the incident is not to the point. At last the guardian angels withdrew into a place of safety, the works being finished, and strange to say we hear no more concerning them. Though they were left in the camp of the rebels, while Berkeley's troops were repulsed, and what befell them during the subsequent triumph, a brief one of the Baconian forces, and the burning of Jamestown, we are not told. It is to be hoped that they were restored to their homes with more courtesy than they were brought thence. Bacon's antagonist, Sir William Berkeley, did not prove himself more gallant or considerate to women than the defeated rebel. After Bacon had been defeated and wisely died, the wife of Major Cheeseman, one of the captured rebels, was present during the interrogation of her husband by Berkeley, and when the latter demanded Cheeseman's reasons for rebelling, the lady very courageously came forward and prevented his reply by telling the enraged Sir William that it was her provocation that made her husband join in the cause that Bacon contended for. If he had not been influenced by her instigations, he had never done that which he had done. And then, kneeling to Berkeley, she continued, Since what her husband had done was by her means, and so by consequence she most guilty, she prayed that she might be hanged and he pardoned. It was a womanly and wifely speech, and those who are unacquainted with the character of Berkeley will find it difficult to believe that he answered her by a proposition so gross and insulting that it proved him utterly wanting the true instincts, however he may have had a veneer of a gentleman, as well as an understanding of a woman's heart. Cheeseman was not hanged, however, but he died in prison, and the circumstances were thought mysterious, so that Berkeley was not held guiltless of the death. In the narrated incidents we can find a point of contrast between the female cultures of the North and of the South. We can well imagine a Puritan wife addressing a dignitary 
as Mrs. Cheeseman addressed Governor Berkeley, but it is impossible to fancy Puritan women in the situation in which those white guards of the devil found themselves. The former would never have submitted to the degradation. They would not, for their lives, have so hampered the hands of their husbands. It was not the pioneer woman of a new continent who stood upon those ramparts and made their own breasts the shields of their enemies, but the delicately reared and nurtured woman of a pampered class. Yet that there were good courage among these fine ladies is shown, if showing were necessary, in the example of Mrs. Cheeseman. But it was not universal as among the women of the Puritans, though both its presence and absence formed but a general rule to which there were many important exceptions. With all their divergences and differences, however, there was between the North and South one point of contact which was typical, racial, and individual, and which in its persistence grew to be national. It was, of course, a continuation of Anglo-Saxon tradition, applied to new circumstances which made it but the more powerful in influence. But it was a tradition which was to be potent in the formation of the American spirit. This was the home for the home as we know it is almost, if not entirely, uniquely American and English. There may be entered a saving clause concerning the Teutonic nations, but it would not impeach the full integrity of the statement. Only in the Anglo-Saxon races has the home possessed the peculiar sanctity which it holds in this day among those same peoples. And in America... This has been distinctively the case. For a race of pioneers, which builds in the desert its own continuing cities, sees in its edifices, however humble at first, something which is not evident to the inhabitor of ancient cities. The dweller in the wilderness gazes with a peculiar affection upon the little tract which he has reclaimed, and the cottage or even hut, with its humble household gods and goods, takes in his eyes a strange and extrinsic value because of that which they represent to him in achievement and of necessity. Therefore, north and south, the first thought of as the pioneer settler was to establish the home, and the first requisite of the home in its presiding deity the wife. Thus the American woman had from the first a peculiar value in the eyes of her husband. She was more surely flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone than were other wives, for she shared of necessity all of his perils and triumphs, while his work was patiently done for her as for himself. She represented to him his gage to fortune, as well as his best beloved and most needed companion and she was necessary to him. This attitude of the husband, unexpressed, perhaps uncomprehended, was none the less effective in forming the womanly idea of the home. Because that home had been gained, in the aggregate at last, in the individual at first, by the sweat of her goodman's brow, and was maintained and guarded by the labor of his hands and the courage of his heart, Therefore the American wife was conscious of a peculiar duty toward the husband, 
a peculiar tenderness toward the home, which to her represented as much as to him. In this way, and for these reasons, the sanctity of the American home became peculiarly marked, and there arose in that home an atmosphere of holiness and purity that was in contrast to the households of other nations at that day. There is no more appropriate place than this, on the borderline of the two epochs of colonization, when the American type began to be defined and recognized, for a brief glance at the American home and its spiritual features. As with the homes in rural England, but differing in this respect, as in so many others, from the city life of the mother country, the purity of the home was its most noteworthy and carefully conserved feature. In many respects there was likeness between the home of America and that of Holland. Certainly, though in many aspects the resemblance failed, there was a closer resemblance than between the former and the home in any other nation. Whether this came from the brief sojourn of the pilgrims in Holland cannot be said with certainty, though it seems most improbable, the greater likelihood is that the conditions which prevailed in colonial America were those best adapted to the genius of the Dutch people in the matter of domesticity, as latter shown in the somewhat similar conditions and results in South Africa. Certain it is that the American home, like that of Holland, was in all ways materially and morally preeminently clean. There are many faults to be attributed to our ancestors north and south, but they had great virtues as well, and this of cleanliness in the home was one and a great one. Even at this early day there was plenty of roistering and even vice in the colonies, more especially in Virginia, where the gay young blades ruffled it in imitation of the sparks of the court of the stewards. But the home was still preserved free from contamination. Woman was from the first held as a sacred thing, as a being to be reverenced and even worshipped, not with the affected gallantry of the English cavaliers or the French exquisites, but in all honesty and honor. They knew her value, these men of the old colonies, and they felt an affront to her purity and virtue was a blow at the very foundation of the country they were learning to love. So it was that in America, as nowhere else, woman was, in the mid-colonial days, held in honor and honest reverence, and so it was that the American home, founded amid the clamor of the war-hoop, and standing as the true stronghold of civilization, grew to be the finest emblem of the spirit of the new land, and the noblest monument to the character and influence of its women. End of chapter 5